Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today. All your purposes for all your glory. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Good morning. If we haven't met, I'm Melissa Lukowitz, and I um, have the pleasure of being one of the ministers here at Church of the Redeemer. I'm um, no longer on staff. As a lot of you know, I transitioned off of our youth ministry staff, but still love being able to be here as one of the ministers here who gets to be able to sometimes preach. So I'm so glad that you're here today. And if we haven't met, please come up and introduce yourself afterwards. I love, would love to meet you. So today is kind of a big deal, and not just because of the Super Bowl. And we'll finally get to see if Taylor Swift really make it on time to the Super Bowl from Japan. We'll finally get to see if she makes, let's not forget it, her 13th Chiefs game of the season. No, today is actually a really big deal in our church because it's the Transfiguration Sunday. It's this Sunday that we get to celebrate Christ's life, the fullness of Christ being made man. Um, We have been traveling through Epiphany. We've been traveling through in our sermon series and in our even, we've had amazing testimonies every week that have been so neat to be able to hear and see from people within our own congregation about how Christ has been revealed in their lives. And today we are going to be following along again with our passage in Mark, and I hope that you can follow along with me. Zach already read it once for us, but I want to be able to dive in a little bit, um, a little deeper today on this Transfiguration Sunday. So we heard the scene set for us. If you're following along in Mark 9, Jesus and the big three are all going on a little hike. They're going up a mountain, high mountain, removed from everyone else. It's Jesus, James, John, and Peter. They, he brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And then the word says, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. I love that that detail is in there. You know, this isn't just like a white like my alb right now. This is a white like no one could bleach it. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So while they're all there, the word says, he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant. So this word transfigured, which actually in Greek is taken from the word metamorphothē, which sounds a lot like our word in English, metamorphosis, right? And it means to transform or transfigure. But the thing about this word in the Greek is that it's only used two times, this exact form, two times in, the, in Scripture. And the other time it's used is in this same account in Matthew at the transfiguration. There's uses of it with a different form in a couple other places, but it made me pause and question, okay, so this word is used sometimes for this word transfigure and sometimes for this word transform. What's the difference here? And so I want to spend a few minutes, just a couple minutes, talking about this difference. So to transform is to change greatly the appearance or form of something. The best example I can think of is what comes to our mind when we think of metamorphosis, 
a butterfly, right? It's one thing. It starts as one thing. It goes through the whole life cycle. I'm not a science teacher, whatever happens, you know, and it becomes this beautiful butterfly after it's been transformed. It's very, nature has been completely changed. But this word transfigure is actually to transform the outward appearance of something. So the best way I can think about this is kind of like, have you ever seen like one of those home improvement shows where you see the old rundown fixer-upper beater, you know, house that you're like, man, I'm glad I don't live there. And then some magic elves come in and completely transform it. And all of a sudden they're selling it for half a mil. And you're like, man, why didn't I get that piece of property when I had the chance? You know, it has this complete shift of how it looks. Same house, same bones, but it's changed. Another more personal example is um, my husband and I, Randy, got to have our nephew over the other day. And he's three, very into cars and trucks, as one is. And he had some of the coolest cars from the movie Cars, duh. Um, And he had one car that I didn't recognize, and I was like, Ezra, who is this? And he was like, that's Sally. And I was like, hmm, does not look like Sally, because I know what Sally looks like in Cars. You know, she's light blue. And this car was like a really deep shade of purple. And, And I said, that's Sally? And he said, yeah, she changed. And I was like, okay, wait, does she change? And so Randy and I came to find out that when Sally gets put into warm water, she completely changes color. And she comes to her, her beautiful self, her light blue, Carolina blue. Um, and so Randy, being the craftsman that he is, he um, pulls out this huge PVC pipe from our garage and cuts it in half. And Sally gets this whole roller coaster down the PVC pipe into a tub of water, either cold, you know, where she changes, she's the purple or warm water, where she changes into the light blue. And we did this for probably about three hours, over and over and over again. And every time, Ezra was like just as fascinated as the time before, where he would yell out emphatically, she changed! And we were like, yeah, she changed, over and over and over again. So Sally was the same car, same, did the same thing, but she changed into this beautiful blue, or back to this purple. So those are just a couple examples that I want to tell of the difference of transform versus transfigure, because I feel like when we come to this passage, it's so mystical and it's so almost magical that it's hard for us to grapple with what's actually happening. And so there are a couple of myths that I just want to debunk, first of all. First of all, the thing that is not happening here, we don't see Jesus all of a sudden just changing into like some ghost or angel or just God state. That's not what's happening in this, in this moment. This is still Christ, fully man. This is before death and resurrection. His fully man, human self being transfigured. Thomas Aquinas says it this way, that we are seeing the glory of his soul. A second myth that I want to dispel is that there are a lot of times in Scripture when we come to these different passages and people are given a vision. They're given this beautiful sight of something the Lord is showing them. Sometimes it's beautiful, sometimes it's terrifying, but it's a vision that the Lord has given someone or, you know, dreams that the Lord will speak and he does this beautiful thing where he reveals himself in these visions. But this is not some vision that's in their mind's eye. We see in the scripture, and even in our New Testament passage, I don't know if you caught it, but it references what's happening at the Mount of Transfiguration, 
the, the disciples saw with their physical eyes this transfiguration happening before them. And they all three saw it together and heard it together. If you're thinking, well, Melissa, how do you know? Well, because Scripture tells us. Let's follow along in verse 5. Peter responded and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know how to reply. For they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave orders to not tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So we have to ask ourselves when we think about this, all of this that happened. I mean, this is a really big deal. They had never seen anything like this. They were not prepared for something like this. So why did this happen? Why did Jesus need to transfigure? How does it fit into his message to bring salvation to the ends of the earth? What was it all about? And these are just a few simple questions that I'm hoping we can wrap up in about 20 minutes now. Yeah. So I will say there are dozens of reasons that theologians have said through the years that the transfiguration happened. But I'm going to focus just primarily on two today. Aren't you lucky? Just two. The first one is to strengthen the disciples for what was to come. I really believe, and we'll take that apart a little bit in a minute, I think that one of the major reasons that the, tra- that the transfiguration had to happen was to strengthen the disciples for what was to come. And then the second reason I think that's so important that sometimes I feel like gets a little missed is to show them that the glory of God could be and would be revealed in the very person of Christ, which also means that same glory of God can be made alive in our own bodies, and our own lives. So first, let's look at why would he want to strengthen them. Well, Jesus knew where he was headed. It was not a surprise to him that he was there to suffer and die on behalf of the world, to bring us to salvation. And he had even started to talk about it a little bit, foretelling his death, foretelling his suffering that would have to happen. And his disciples... They knew that he was this long-awaited king, this long-awaited Messiah. His name even means anointed one. And so in their mind, they're like, absolutely not. No way is our king, our savior, our rescuer going to have to go through that. No way. And this is what's really difficult about this, is that Jesus knew ahead of time his disciples were not only going to have to witness this hardship, they were also going to have to endure hardship. They would also have to suffer. And so in this state of not wanting him to have to suffer these things, we even see it in Mark chapter 8, just a chapter before where we are today, where Peter even rebukes Jesus, you know, and it's the famous passage where Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, because you have the mind of things of man, not the things of God. And Peter is, you know, so emphatic that he doesn't want Jesus to have to have this fate, this suffering, this death. They couldn't bear to think of him having to endure such things. But these same disciples who had seen Jesus perform miracles, had seen Jesus heal countless people, walk on water, even raise people from the dead, how would it make sense that this long-awaited Savior and rescuer would have 
all of a sudden be completely helpless and vulnerable to men. <clears throat> before, we, before, the witness, before the disciples witnessed this utter humi- humiliation, shame, and abuse, and the horror that Christ was having to face, he wanted them to see a little glimpse behind the curtain. He wanted to show them this picture of his glory, not that was somehow far off, but was there with him then. It's just like our God, isn't it? To give us a glimmer of hope, to remind us, I am here with you in this suffering. This will not defeat you. This thing that you're going through, this trial that you're going to face, it's not going to overpower you. It will not be the death of you. It's as if he wanted to say to them before they entered that season, remember who I am. Remember the power of God that abides within me. It is mine and it is yours. Bishop Barron says it this way, the transfiguration awakens our sense of wonder and steals our courage to face the darkness here below. Jesus knew that the suffering he was about to go through and even the suffering that the disciples would face would be unbearable. When people say, oh, God, God won't give you more than you can handle, I'm sorry, I don't think that's actually in the Bible that way. That's not the intent. God, a lot of times, allows us things that are harder than we can handle, more unbearable than we can bear. But yet he is faithful and he provides the strength we need in the midst of it. He knew that these disciples would just about not be able to take it. They would be pushed to that limit. But he also knew that he would be faithful to them. He would be the one waiting on the other side to be the lifter of their heads when they denied him to be the restorer of their peace when they had none, to be the God who sees them in the midst of their darkest night. He would be their glory, and he had to show them a glimpse of that glory that was for them. And see, here is the second thing about this transfiguration. The beauty that the Lord desired to show these disciples this at the transfiguration, not only was this glory of God to be found in Christ as divine, God, man, it was to be revealed within his very body, within the flesh, person, man, son of God. Not somehow divine being over here that was separate apart from his body. No, actually one God with man. Not just his divinity, but also his humanness, his actual man state. And so I think as we think about epiphany and going through the life of Christ, we've, we started back with the baptism of Christ and we remember and the disciples heard at his baptism, God the Father saying, this is my son. And now we have it again, God saying again, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So they knew that he was God's son, and that was beautiful. But the thing that was really different at this moment, and the thing that I believe wasn't really truly clear until this moment, is that this same God that had been Yahweh to the people of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, and this same Jesus, the man before them, were actually one and the same. At the transfiguration, 
it became ultimately clear that this same God of the Old Testament, the God who had given them the law through Moses, which we see Moses with him, and the God who had brought all the prophets through with Elijah being represented with the prophets, this same God, Yahweh, was actually this same God incarnate in Jesus Christ. The great I am, one with Jesus. And the thing that is so important that I think he was conveying to these three disciples is this phenomenon that had not really been in the minds of the Jewish people at this point. There was a lot of, at this time, in history, there was a lot of different groups and sects among the people that were trying to figure out who is this person Jesus? Who is this man that just is obviously sent from God and can perform these things and can do these miracles? Who is he and what's he all about? And there was a lot of differences between what people thought. And there were some people who thought that basically the God of the Old Testament was mean and bad, judgmental and scary, And then this God, Jesus, was this nice, loving, kind God. And so they would rather leave this God. They think this one's all done. Now there's a new and improved God. And now there's this Jesus God. Lots of character development that happened along the way. And so now we're going to choose to hold to this God because he's finally become this nice, kind, loving God. That was one group of people. There's another group of people that basically thought that God, if he was actually God, he was only kind of masquerading as a phantom. So his actual body wasn't there on earth. That he was just kind of like a ghost presence that would walk around and be with people and then kind of disappear. This is another type of um, philosophy that a lot of people held to. They were called the Gnostics. And that led to them also thinking that what we do here, our bodies, our physical beings, they don't really matter. And this earth here, this life here that's created, this matter, doesn't really matter. And so it was as if Christ was saying, no, the whole point of me being made man in this body, in this physical human state is so on purpose. Because without me being both man and God, I cannot fully save you. In this moment, At the transfiguration, Jesus was declaring that he was one and the same with this God of the Old Testament and that his body, his very body, was revealing the glory of God. Tish Harrison Warren says in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, the biblical call to an embodied morality, to sexual purity, for instance, or moderation in food and drink, comes not out of a disdain for the body and its appetites, but out of the understanding that our bodies are central to the life in Christ. Our bodies and souls are inseparable, and therefore anything we do with our bodies and anything we do with our souls, those two things are always entwined. So it doesn't mean that you can just do these things over here and your body and your soul is somehow not a part of it. We are an embodied people, body, mind, soul, and spirit. So in this point of Jesus being in his human state glorified, I think that the reason why I want to talk so much about this is because the beauty of when this happened, guys, is not somehow after the resurrection. This glory that appears in Jesus' actual body is just before he's about to go into the middle 
of the worst suffering and death that we could ever imagine. Irenaeus says, when he was trying to defend this matter of Jesus being man, Irenaeus says, the glory of God is man fully alive. Not man made perfect, not man happy, healthy, prosperous. The glory of God is man fully alive. And the reason why he could say that with such boldness is because we see the glory of God in Christ fully alive. And what is so beautiful about that is that it means that not only was this glory of God for Jesus, this glory of God was also intended for us. It is not somehow somewhere, somehow, some faraway place that we can't get to. This glory of God that was made apparent in Christ, it's as if he's saying to them, this is here for you too. And I think sometimes it's really easy for us to believe that if we are struggling or if we are in a season of darkness and depression or of longing or of just being really overwhelmed by the life around us, it feels like sometimes suffering is what is keeping us from the glory of God. That somehow this glory of God is just on the other side. One day we'll get to that glory of God in heaven. But what if the glory of God is found right in the middle of that suffering? Right in the midst of that darkness that feels so close it could swallow you up. What if that is where the glory of God delights to dwell? Think about it. Why else did the transfiguration happen before Jesus suffered and died? God could have revealed it at any point. He could have done this transfiguration after he died and rose again. But that wouldn't have been in his same alive, man-made body. He wanted him to be able to reveal glory of God is for us. Glory of God is made manifest in us despite suffering and death, despite the downtroddenness of this world, the glory of God is ours to be able to have. I think that our thought is that this glory, a lot of times our thought in this life can be that this glory is kind of out there waiting for us at some point, or that we'll get to it maybe on the other side once we enter heaven, once we finally are free from all of this. But the the truth and the beauty of this Transfiguration Sunday is that his glory is for us right now. It's not something that's far off. And you might say, Melissa, that sounds really nice, but you don't really know the stuff that I have to deal with. And you're right, I might not. But I have seen the Lord's glory change life after life. I've watched as the lost and the lonely are brought into homes and shown the love of Christ glory of God revealed. I have seen the abuser and the abused find forgiveness and healing, glory of God revealed. I have watched the sick and the diseased be healed and the sick and the diseased not be healed and still praise the Lord. Glory to God, glory of God revealed. I've seen the depressed cling to the truth of God in the midst of their darkness, not just once it's relieved. What if it's never relieved? The glory of God being praised and revealed in the midst of that darkness. That's glory of God. 
I've watched the brokenhearted come and receive communion, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and his life being taken into their lives, make them making them new. Maybe for the first time, maybe for a long, after a long time of way. Glory of God revealed. I've seen the power-hungry and prideful begin to learn what it looks like to use their voices and positions of power to lift up the downtrodden and the marginalized. Glory of God revealed. I have heard stories of those who have been wronged by the injustice of racism continue to persist in love to the very ones who have hated and abused them. Glory of God revealed. Lives transfigured. The same people, the same flesh and bones, but new lives. Lives that look different by the power and the glory of God. So to wrap us up today, I wanted to share three practices that we see, I think, in this passage, along with three examples in my own life of how I feel like I've seen this play out. And the first thing I'll point out is that the beautiful thing that happens in this passage is that, well, one of the many beautiful things, but one thing that I love is that the transfiguration happened, Jesus ordained it to happen in community. It was not just one man, one person being revealed by God, one thing. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. They are brought together to understand this huge truth, this phenomenon that would be the basis of our church. Things that we still say today, thousands of years later. They fought to understand together and were in community together to wrestle with these deep theological understandings and truths. Community, holding fast to the truth of what God's glory in their lives meant together. We know that God never intended us to live independently from one another. Even from the very beginning of creation, he says in Genesis, it's not good for humankind to be alone. We need each other. We need one another. We need people in places that we can show up and bear our souls and not feel judged, and not be hurt. But sometimes to be hurt and to go through that together, to see the glory of God on the other side. I have a group of ladies that I've been praying with for years now, and this group of ladies are like gold to me. We see the good, we see the bad, and we see the ugly in our lives. And it's not a group where you find out the info and then you go and you tell other people. It's not that kind of group. Or you share it as a prayer request. The women in here get me on that? There's lots of times that I feel like that can be something that is used against us when we're real. A lot of times in church, people have been so hurt by that. And this community has never been like that. This community has been a safe place. And we've been able to share hard things about life and also really good things about life. We've been able to experience this sorrow and joy because that is man fully alive. It is not just the good. It is not just the bad. Man fully alive is experiencing both of these things together. The glory of God is revealed in the midst of all of life, not just the good parts. And I would encourage you to find a group like that. Find people that are a safe place for you. Find that community because like we know, the word tells us, we are not supposed to do this alone. 
We are only able to be able to be a part of this community of believers by committing to one another and by saying, yes, we are going to live this life hand in hand and we're going to walk through the joy and the sorrow. We're going to be together an embodied people worshiping and journeying through our faith together. So find those people. Fight to keep those relationships. Endure so that you too are able to see the glory of God revealed in one another's lives. Because that is a beautiful thing to behold indeed. The second way that I feel like we see this, um, a second practice we see in this passage, is by actually the very word from God when he says, listen to him. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When I was first a believer, I had not really grown up in the church. And except for Christmas and Easter, of course, you know. And... um, I had started reading my Bible and would just like pour through it. And I kept coming to these words that were read. And I was like, what are these words that are read? What is this all about? Why are some of these words read? And someone, I can't remember who told me, but someone said, well, those are Jesus's words. And I was like, what? We have Jesus's words in this book? And it was like mind blowing to me. Like, from, from that far, how? How do we have these words? And, you know, part of that, like, glory and understanding of that was mind-blowing. And I kind of wish that, in a way, I still clung to them like that. But I want, I want to. And I think that during this season of Lent, it's a perfect time to allow a little bit more silence, a little bit more solitude, maybe cut out music some or podcast some, and focus on Jesus' words. Listen to him. Silence can feel a lot of times a little scary because we're not sure what we'll find there. And like I've always said to our youth, if you are in a place where in the silence you hear this bullying voice that sounds mean, that is never God's voice. That is not the voice of Jesus. He might lead you to change something, but it says in the word that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Not a bullying voice, not a mean voice. So when you listen, try to hear the kindness of Jesus' words to you. And a third way that I see this playing out in our lives and kind of a practice that I see in this passage of transfiguration is just this willingness to say, what does it look like to have the glory of God revealed in our lives when everything doesn't look perfect, when we're in these seasons of waiting and longing, when we don't have all the answers, when the test results didn't come back favorably, when we lose a child, when we lose a parent. When I was, um, a lot of you have heard this story, but I lost my mom to brain cancer when I was 21. And for years I had tried to figure out a way to pray her to health, you know. I had studied all these scriptures on healing prayer, and I wanted to get the formula just right, anoint with oil, and say these words, and have all these people praying. And, you know, I really held fast because I wanted such faith to believe that she could be healed. I really held fast to this belief that she was going to be healed. I knew it. I knew she was going to be healed. I didn't want any seed of unfaithfulness in me, and she was not healed in her earthly body. She passed away. And it was so hard for me to reconcile this truth of, Why would God in his power not do something good? How could this be good? How could the glory of God be in this? 
And it's something that I began to, my life started to change because of my bitterness and my resentment. And I started to feel really jaded and skeptical. I would kind of think to myself, I mean, I don't even know why I would pray. It's not going to change anything. If God's going to do something, he's going to do something. So what does it matter? And I had this callousness of my heart because the very thing that I had so desperately longed for didn't happen. But there was this still small voice, kind of like our passage where we heard from Elijah hearing this still small voice one day when I was praying and angry and asking the Lord why. I didn't hide my anger and my frustration towards him. And you know what? It didn't scare him off. He could take it. And he said to me one day in my kind of mind, my heart, Melissa, you can remain in this bitter, bitterness. You can keep this hardness of heart. I'm not going to force it away from you. But you will never know my peace and my freedom if you cling to this. You will be miserable. I know you don't understand, and I know it doesn't make sense. But if you don't let this go, it will ruin your life. And it was in that moment that I somehow, Christ being my strength, found the Holy Spirit giving me the power to let it go and to understand that though I didn't understand it, though I wouldn't maybe have seen it as a good thing, the glory of God could still be revealed in that place. The glory of God could still be made known to me in seeing his death and resurrection giving power for death leading to resurrection for us. And not just that, but that in the middle of death and suffering, he could be this beautiful glory and strength in the midst of it. As we enter into our season of Lent on Wednesday, these things, I would say, let's ask the Lord to help reveal in our own lives those hard situations that we're facing. Let's ask how the glory of God might be revealed, even there, even there. Nothing is too hard for him to show his own glory. And it's such a gift to be able to experience his presence as he leads us through those valleys, the glory of God transfiguring our lives. As we turn to the Lord's table, let's listen. Let's remember that we're listening to his words, his holy words that say to come and receive his body and blood that's given for us for the redemption of the world. Let's do this in remembrance of him. And as we do, may we become even more fully alive displaying the glory of God in each of us. I'm going to pray this canticle from um, the season of Epiphany. It's my favorite canticle um, over us as we close. So pray with me. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has dawned upon you. For behold, darkness covers the land. Deep gloom enshrouds the peoples. But over you the Lord will rise. And his glory will appear upon you. Nations will stream to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawning. Your gates will be always open. By day or night, they will never be shut. They will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Violence will no more be heard in your land, ruin or destruction within your borders. You will call your walls 
salvation, and all your portals praise. The sun will no more be your light by day. By night, you will not need the brightness of the moon. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. May it be so in us today. Amen.